Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Jonas Bjorkman, and you are listening to the Tennis Podcast. Just a few weeks after he stood on the centre court at Wimbledon in tears, Andy Murray was euphoric after gaining sweet revenge against Roger Federer and winning an Olympic gold medal in the process. We'll pick the bones out of it here on the Tennis Podcast and in our exclusive interview we talk to the former player and top commentator Cliff Drysdale. Well, I'm really pleased that we've got Cliff Drysdale on the show today, Catherine. He is an example of one of the great bonuses of what we're able to do in this job, isn't he, really? Because we get to tap into the brains of people that we've admired from afar as tennis fans for, for many, many years. I mean, Cliff has got the most extraordinary history in the game, going right back to, to when he was a, a top player. He was he was four in the world. He was a US Open finalist. And, you know, he talks in the, in our interview about about the differences of being a US Open finalist back then to, to sort of 30, 35 years later. And, and, and to, to, to sum up what changes have taken place in the game, he was a, a very, very important political figure in the sport as well at the ATP, as you'll hear. He's the man who led the ATP boycott of Wimbledon in 1973. And just reading some of the, the old clippings from that time, as, as I've been doing in preparation for my interview with him, you get a sense for just just what a thing it was that he was taking on. I mean, imagine that taking on Wimbledon. It, it's 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 quite something to have done, and uh, and you'll hear all about that from Cliff Drysdale in our interview a little bit later. But first of all, I think we need to talk about the Olympic tennis, Catherine, because it do. all finished yesterday afternoon with Andy Murray defeating Roger Federer in the final to win the gold medal. I mean, what a story that was. Yeah, I found it very emotional, actually, particularly. I mean, all of the build-up on... We were watching it, obviously, on BBC television. You weren't crying again, were you, Catherine? I wasn't, but largely because Murray himself wasn't crying. I thought he did... I I don't know whether he was thinking, goodness me, I don't want to become known as the crier, win or lose. Um, So we were watching it on BBC television in the UK, obviously, and all the build-up involved emotional montages of, you know, uh, what had happened four weeks earlier when he'd lost to Federer in the final. So um, they were setting the stakes pretty high and I don't think he could have delivered um, any any more than he did, really. No. It was extraordinary. There was, a, there was one great line I heard from uh, one of the, uh, the tennis websites, the Tennis Space, I, I read uh, on the eve of the final where they said, in order for... If Murray manages to triple bagel Federer in the final, he might make the shortlist for BBC Sports Personality of the Year. <laughs> it was it was that that's the kind of competition that that tournament that competition will have at the end of the year, isn't it? Because the Olympics, I mean, 
it started with that that whirlwind of the of the opening ceremony didn't it we recorded our previous edition of the podcast on the morning that that was going to take place and i don't think anybody could have believed what would follow with that opening ceremony it was so spectacular and then really there was a bit of a lull wasn't there for two or three days with the olympics from a british perspective nothing much happened but i mean personally i mean i know this isn't 100 percent tennis that i'm talking about now but we've just had the most incredible two days of sport in this country i think there's ever been yeah i've struggled to process it really my excitement level i'm usually a fairly um reserved english person and uh i've just completely gone out of character this weekend it's been it's been ridiculous and i i fail to um i fail to understand how anybody could have been not just a little bit swept up in it really it's been did you um, leave your lounge and your front of your television even for five minutes no only to dance around my flat obviously (laughs) (laughs) at various moments when you had to go and make a meal or something like that you you made yourself do it but you 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 ensured that you had your earphones in or to answer the door when the takeaway man arrived (laughs) yeah Yeah. okay well let's get back to federer against murray just quickly there because what struck me was just how Murray took on what he started in that Wimbledon final. It was like a carbon copy of the first set and a half, wasn't it? But then he carried it on. Yeah, it's strange watching that. Obviously, I was I was nervous and the build-up. I'm betraying the fact that I was supporting Murray here. We, yeah, I'm I'm British. Sorry. Um, uh, I didn't. I just didn't have that same. I just wasn't on the edge of my seat at any stage you know there were moments when I was nervous that game early on in the the second set uh, where I think he saved five or six uh, break points on his serve to hold I yes. think that was very crucial I think it was early in the third wasn't it early in the th- uh, you may well be right but I, I remember feeling very very nervous at that particular point you know it was very obvious that that was a, a pivotal moment but apart from that I, j- I just had a feeling of serenity that I didn't have at any stage in the Wimbledon final, even when he was playing at the top of his game, you know, is at the end of the first set. Is that to do with how Federer was playing rel- relatively from one of those matches to the other? No, I think I don't think that gives sufficient credit to to Murray. I mean, Mur- Murray and a lot of great tennis players. I mean, how often do you see someone get get beaten and you say, "Wow, they've played their absolute best." When someone gets beaten. Part of the the reason for their defeat is that their opponent m- makes them, brings out the worst in them, or, or 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 prevents them from from playing their best tennis, and that's what Murray does more than more than anybody on the tour at the moment. Are you say. saying therefore that if Federer had managed to flick that switch and produce that level of tennis he found at the Wimbledon final, that it wouldn't have been enough? That's assuming that he would have been able to flick that switch because I think Murray Murray was just I, he was taking the ball a split second earlier than he was in that Wimbledon final. He was he looked like he totally believed, um, and I'm not saying he didn't believe in the Wimbledon final, but there was a conviction about everything about his style of play, about his demeanour on the court. Everything had a conviction to it um, yesterday. Um, I think it showed that he learnt something as well from that final, didn't it? You know, I think he'd, he'd taken, you know, the the positives of the first set and half when he was when he was in control, and he'd figured out how to carry that on. I mean, but I I, I think it is also 
important to point out that Federer wasn't at his best yesterday. I mean, and I think a large part of that is because he wasn't allowed to be at his best. And I think the, there was the, the one point that summed it, summed it up for me was when he did play one fantastic a backhand approach shot over the top with top spin, and he attacked the net, and somehow Murray found a way of just sort of slotting it down the line with the backhand from the most extraordinary, ridiculous position on the court. And I think that that was the point where I thought, this is over. Mm. But, the, but the other thing, I think, to say on on that point is that I, I know, you know, as Murray said himself, Federer isn't half bad for a 30-year-old, and I'm not in any way suggesting that he's part, you know, he's, he's world number one, for, for goodness sake. But um, I heard today that Rafa... Um, texted or he called Murray today or last night to say well done on winning the most difficult title in tennis and I and I read into that that it's the it's the six matches in eight days um including a fight, obviously three set matches plus doubles five set final you know he had to beat Djokovic and Federer he had to beat the world numbers one one and two um to do that um, and maybe six matches in eight days for Federer, plus I think he played a couple of matches of doubles, maybe that is too much at 30. Including a four-and-a-half-hour three-set well, match exactly. against Potra. Exactly. I, mean, I, I, I agree with you. He looked a little bit flat. He looked as though he hadn't got the gear yesterday. He, even, even regardless of how well Murray was playing, it looked as though it just wasn't there for Roger yesterday to me. And I think what you're saying is that over two weeks, seven matches where you've got no doubles in between and you've got that ability to, to, to sort of plan your schedule that much more, he can pace himself and he can ensure that he peaks, can't he? Yeah, Federer is all about peaking at the right time, isn't he? And the other thing that um, we've had John McEnroe um, doing a lot of the punditry on our... Um, on our coverage of the Olympics over here, and he was quite strongly suggesting that uh, that Federer would, was really not enjoying uh, how partisan the, the crowd were. I mean, even in the Wimbledon final, he had a significant amount of support there, but there was something about it being for Great Britain. Um, I think Murray has increased support in this country after the Wimbledon final anyway. I think he won a lot of people's affections then. But also the fact that he was competing for his country completely galvanised support in that centre court and there weren't many voices cheering for Federer, were there? No, no. I mean, it, and, and I think probably... I mean, I, I know what John's saying and I, I think he's got a point to an extent. I mean, I think he's not giving Federer enough credit there. I think Federer can handle pretty much any situation I think he's I don't I think it might have put his nose out of joint a little bit mm. but I mean generally I think the bigger impact is the one that it had on Murray because and, and I, I'd say that I think this will be very interesting to find out whether over the next three or four years whether Murray can provide can produce that level of tennis consistently at other events other than the Olympic Games because I think I think that's the best I've ever seen him play um, consistently, yeah, and I, and I think part part of that is he's the sort of character that I think absolutely loves this sort of representing your nation, being part of a team. Um, I think he watched the Saturday night track and field stuff. He, he saw Mo Farah. He saw Jessica Ennis. He'd seen earlier in the day Catherine Granger uh, win, a, win a gold medal after all those silvers that she'd won mm. in the rowing. And I think he was inspired by it. And I think he thought, right, I want some of that. And, and, and I'm not going to go a, away without it. And, I, and I'd, I mean, I know it's easy to say and a different thing to do, but I think it focused his mind. 
Would you? Who would you have as favourite for the U.S. Open now? Um, no, I wouldn't say he's the favourite, but I would say there is no favourite. There is no head and shoulders favourite for me now. I think. I think I would genuinely put Djokovic, Federer, and Murray equal favourites. Definitely um, Federer. Uh, definitely Rafa out of those. I would, I would now because I think there's too much of a question mark about his fitness at this stage. I mean, he's already pulled out of Toronto, mm. and what I would have assumed is that he was pulling out of the Olympics in order to give himself the best mm. possible run-up into into um, the and US be Open. fresher than everyone else having not played the Olympics. Yeah, and 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 for him to pull out of Toronto does send warning signals for me that that there is there's more to it and and I think he'll I think he'll make the US Open but I think he'll just about make it and I think he I think he will struggle uh, I don't I I mean I've been made to look stupid for writing Rafael Nadal off too many times to do it again but you know what I'm going to do it again because I think I think he's uh, he's not going to win the US Open this year I think he's going to need more or less to take the rest of the year off It'd be very interesting when the draw comes out, then, won't it, to see which of those, which two of those three, will be drawn in the same half of the draw? Because somebody is going to have to beat. You may only have to beat one of them to get the title, or you might yeah. have to be. You know, Murray might have to beat Djokovic and then Federer, like he did at the Olympics, yeah. or you know, he could come out lucky and they could face I, I one mean, another in the semis. I do think Del Potro is, is is suddenly part of the argument now as well. I mean, having won the title before, having produced that level of tennis to win the bronze and beat Djokovic, that was a, a bit of a surprise, really. Um, very interesting for me now, the US Open. I think there's a, there's, it's the, the most open that I can remember feeling about it this, this stage, going into it. I mean, we'll, we'll perhaps feel differently about it when we go through Toronto and go through Cincinnati. I mean, you know Toronto. I, I do feel sorry for them. I mean, I've I, I worked at that tournament, covered it for Five Live two years ago, and they had a semi-final lineup of Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, and Murray. I mean, it was just it was just fantastic. Mm. Murray won the tournament, beat Nadal and Federer back to back. And this year, they're not going to have Federer. They're not going to have Nadal. Um, no. So it's it's a blow to them. Well, credit to Murray for he booked his flight to Toronto as soon as he got off court from that mixed doubles final. Oh wow! Um, Fantastic. Yeah, so credit to him for for making that journey. I think that shows a lot of respect for the tournament and um, and for the ATP and everything. So. And actually, you know what? I think it's it's good for his preparation because even if he doesn't have the greatest of runs there, you've got to acclimatise quickly, both to the courts, the conditions, the the time difference, and there's so much less time this time because of the Olympics and. I think he's got to get his get his feet going on that mm. surface immediately, so that when he goes into Cincinnati, he can be really flying. Um, that's the one that I think will be the yardstick for where players are in their preparations. I, I think, uh, no disrespect to Toronto, I just think this time it's going to be. It could be a surprise winner there. In fact, uh, I wouldn't be that surprised if somebody unusual came out and won and won Toronto. Um, and I also uh, don't worry for Murray so much from a from a freshness perspective. I think he's just got adrenaline coursing through his veins now. I think he's probably feeling better than he's ever felt in his life. I yeah. don't think you know playing lots of matches is going to be an issue for him like it would be with Rafa. You know, at this stage yeah. of the season, everyone's always worrying about Rafa, especially on 
the American hard courts, which are the toughest on on the players on the players' bodies and knees and everything. But I'm just I'm not worrying about that from from Murray's perspective. I think momentum is more important than than any of the other concerns. Which you know, obviously, momentum's in his favour at the moment. Yes, yeah, no, absolutely. But and and you know, mindset for me is the biggest thing of the lot because um, it occurred to me halfway through the Djokovic match. Um, I was just chatting away with people on Twitter. Don't forget you can get in touch with us at the Tennis Podcast, at Tennis Podcast on Twitter. Uh, I'm also there at David Law Tennis. And and I was talking to a few people about Murray generally. And and one thing that just occurred to me is that he's now playing a muscular tennis, a sort of an almost macho tennis. And, And what it effectively boils down to is he's now playing the aggressive brand of tennis that we've all been asking for for years. It's not... It's not a, a sort of step inside the baseline and whack everything no matter where it is kind no, it's of considered, approach isn't it? because that would be foolhardy. But what it is is if the ball is there to be hit, he, he just puts it away. There's no, mm. there's no second guessing. There's no uh, rallying for the sake of it. There's no extending things and making miraculous recoveries. He just ends points now. And, yeah, he's and got far more that, of a killer instinct, hasn't he? Yeah. And it's it is Lendl. Yeah, I mean, shame you know, Lendl wasn't there yesterday to see him to see him pick that gold up because um, I'm sure he can take a lot of credit for it. I, I I actually suspect that that Lendl will think, yeah, that's great. I'm really pleased for you, but the slams are where it's at. Really, I I I would imagine that's just my my guess. Mm. I, I think that he will he he will feel that that's a really nice bonus, um, but but that. The whole thing will be judged on on the slams. That's interesting because another thing that... One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live and you can watch on your phone or your smart TV, both in HD. Matt, this sounds like your kind of thing. Yeah, there's nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere, dipping in to where there's the latest final set tie break or even the latest bit of aggro. And David, don't worry, you can just watch your favourite court, Suzanne Longlen, all day if you want. But whatever you choose, the French Open promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Do you know, I think in a lot of ways, the French Open is now my favourite slam. It's the strategy of the clay court tennis, the way it challenges players, and particularly now with legends of the game up against a new generation of young players. I cannot wait. Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. 
John McEnroe has been saying he's been quite outspoken over the last few days. Is oh, really? That, that he, <laughs> John's been outspoken. <laughs> is that he thoroughly regrets he had the opportunity to play the Olympics in '88, and it's one of his biggest regrets that he yeah, well, um, he turned that. it down. I mean, I, 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 on the tennis circuit. I mean, I've been on the tennis circuit for 16 years, and and I have not come across a more patriotic um, tennis player than John McEnroe. I mean, mm-hmm. he, you know, if you look at his Davis Cup record, I mean, he, he, he put his hand up every single time and he wore that sort of USA tracksuit with, with such enormous pride. Um, you know, I, I think um, I think McEnroe, I can believe that he regrets that, albeit that the event was very different back then. I mean, the Olympic Games um, wasn't the same tennis event back then. Um, but I, I think he's been walking around from event to event just thinking, oh, wow, this is great. Because he's been covering it for BBC, hasn't he, over here? And um, I, I think he's loved it. And, and, um, uh, and, and I mean, we're, we're looking forward to seeing him in ourselves, in, of course, in, a, in a, a week or so's time, 16th to the 19th of August. He'll be at the Optima Open in Knocker Heist in Belgium, and Catherine will be there coordinating all the interview requests for uh, John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg and Goran Ivanisevic and uh, all the other great champions of the past. They'll be all there in just over a week from now. Um, just to talk a little bit more about uh, the Olympics as well, we should have a look at the women's draw because... Another thing that, that occurred to me while we were chatting away on Twitter the other day is that Serena Williams, I'm not, I'm not sure, I can't think of any player in history at any point that could have beaten her last week. No, she was, it was almost brutal, wasn't it? It was almost, if I had been in the Maria Sharapova camp, I wouldn't, I would have been watching at the very least through, through my fingers or behind the sofa or something because it was... Um, not embarrassing, as you say, because I'm not sure anybody could have mustered <coughs> mustered much um, opposition to Serena on that form. But um, it was chastening, though, wasn't it? I it mean, was to think, that, to think that that you have won one of the slams of the year. You, you're the world number. You've been the world number one, and um, you're getting ju- you are getting humiliated effectively mm. on court. You're representing uh, your country, your, yeah, as well. You know, there's all of that. Yeah, it's. I and she wasn't the him. only one. I mean, look at look at you know Victoria Azarenka who won the first Slam of the Year. I mean, I know I know that that when um, when we started the podcast and I said Serena would win the French Open and got round <laughs> round roundly uh, embarrassed by by that whole uh, whole experience because she because she went out. But even and even though I, I I've always maintained that she's the best player in the world on a day, I didn't think she was going to do something like this. I mean that. That was just. Did you think she absurd. was going to do that dance? Did you see that coming? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think you're allowed to, aren't you, if you produce tennis like that? Yeah, absolutely. Hang on, you just mentioned predictions there. Can we rewind a second? Oh yeah, how did you get on? Well, I think we both predict. I think you copied my prediction, didn't you? I went. For- what do you mean copied? I went. I, I, had I went for Serena. Decided. And- you just ha- I, because I'm a gentleman. I said, <laughs> Catherine, ladies first. Who's going to win the, the the Olympic gold? You said who you thought. I said who I thought. They just happen to be the same. Gentlemen, all cynical predictions mastermind. Who knows? <laughs> well, I think we both went for Serena, didn't we? So we've cancelled each other out there. We both also went for Federer, but I believe I predicted a Murray Federer final, and you predicted you a Djokovic. No, that's Federer true. Final, I, I so said I'm Djokovic, didn't one. I? Yeah. 
I did say Djokovic. I, I agree. I mean, that's uh, very impressive prediction stuff. Now, hey, I think we better give a quick Toronto prediction. Come on, who's oh. going to win Toronto? <sighs> Maybe somebody like Songa. I don't know. Let's go for let's go for Songa. I, I agree Joe with Walker you. So Songa I don't think it's going to be an out for. of the blue surprise. But uh, yeah, let's I'm have Songa. Not sure, I'm not so sure. I think it might be out of the blue. I'm How out of the blue are we talking? For I'm going to go for Milos Rajanic to win in his That's hometown. That's not that out of the blue. Come on. Come on. Well, it's more out of the blue than Joe Wilfred Songa, who's reached a Grand Slam final. 16th seed is not, is not a ball Oh, come blue. on. He's playing Murray in round playing three. At home. I'm saying he's going to beat Murray in round three and go on and win the title. You think in his Murray's getting to round three, do you? <laughs> Steady. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, okay. Well, we're on record. Songa and Ryanich are our respective predictions. Um, so that'll be, uh, be. We should we should come up with some sort of scoring system, shouldn't we? At some point. Uh, and I, I think I think you're a bit ahead. Uh, apart from your humiliation at the uh, at Wim- was it at Wimbledon where you completely got it wrong. Anyway, um, I'll have to go back over previous. Um, podcasts to find out well Catherine very enjoyable to talk to you as always here on the tennis podcast I think it is time to introduce our special guest for this week Mr Cliff Drysdale a hugely respected former player and now broadcaster with ESPN in fact he's been with ESPN ever since they started to cover tennis he reached number four in the world a US Open final but was perhaps best known for leading the boycott of Wimbledon in 1973 I caught up with Cliff in Miami earlier this year and asked him how the game had changed since his heyday. First of all, the game is unrecognisable from the way that it used to be. Not just technically and mechanically and uh, strategic-wise on the court, but it's it's just completely different. Um, I played the final of the US Open and took the subway out there with, with uh, the spectators my rackets and stuff that doesn't happen anymore um, and the early days of pro tennis were, uh, were not anything like what they are now it was like barnstorming from one little US town to another playing for a total purse of $10,000 the first year that total purse for 8 players WCT and then uh, it was not that successful in the beginning, and so we ended up playing for $4,000 for, the, for uh, the group. So the numbers have changed dramatically, for one thing. And uh, yes, the circumstances, the, the, these events now are, are just huge, and they were not in the early days. So we were part of the growing process. I also wonder how, how it changes in terms of the, the sort of camaraderie on on the circuit for for tennis players, you know, these these guys seem to get on pretty well. But from what I hear, from what I read, you 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 would socialise with your with your contemporaries in a different way to the way they do these days. Is that correct? That's very true. We were a family. I mean, the the, the travelling players were a family because we didn't have coaches trainers, psychologists, masseurs, uh, we just didn't have any of that, so we didn't have a, a group of people around us. Um, practice partners, so we practiced with each other. That's just the way that it was. It was, 
it was completely different. So there was a lot of socializing and having dinners together and and uh, having fun together. You, you mentioned the, the U.S. Open final that you played, and and I, I, I was reading that you used to have a good record and against Rod Laver, and because of your your two-handed backhand, is is that correct? The lefties in I like to play against lefties because the the lefty serve in my day uh, always came into the backhand side because by far the majority of players in my era played with sliced backhand. So they slice the backhand back, the lefty serves into the backhand side, charges into the net and puts the ball away. That's what it was all about. And my best shot was my two-handed backhand. So they would slice that that serve into my backhand side and that's my, that was my best shot. So yeah, I had a good record against the Rocket Rod Lever. In fact, I was uh, reminiscing last night about the fact that I was the last player to beat the Rocket at the Grand Slam tournament before he won his second slam in 19... He won it in 69. I beat him at the US Open in 68. That's not a bad little claim to fame. <laughs> um, as, as much as as your history as a tennis player and, and more latterly as a broadcaster, you're obviously very, very significant in, in the, the politics of the, of the sport, and particularly back in the early 70s and, and the, the Wimbledon boycott. Can you explain how you, you came to be in that position in the first place? Is that something that always appealed to you, to, to be able to influence the game and the sport in that way? Um, I, I guess it just happened, you know, like most things in, in life, they just it's a matter of timing and um, WCT was beginning to become a real factor in tennis, Grand Slams and the ITF were at, at war for the most part with the new professional game and the players were sort of stuck in the middle and we felt at a certain time that we wanted to enjoy some independence and have a voice, which we did not have at all. So that's what started it, and I was in the middle of it because I was playing. I was those were my years for playing, the '60s and '70s, and uh, so I became the first president of the ATP. And at that point, uh, very simply, the International Tennis Federation had the feeling that it was losing some power because of this new horrible thing called professional tennis. So its effort to maintain power was to tell the players that they had to be bound by ITF rules about where and when they could play. It was not acceptable to us players. It was, it was a really... It was a position that they took that that they really could not um, sustain. Uh, but Wimbledon, for better or for worse, in that year uh, decided that they they wanted to side with the ITF. Uh, I thought it was a bad decision, um, and uh, that was that was really the crux of the matter. And after that, there was never any question about it anymore. That never came up because it was really it was an untenable position from them. That must have been quite a challenging position to be put in though that you have a, a strong view as, as players and you as the sort of um, spearhead of that and, they, and yet you've got a tournament of the size of Wimbledon 
just at that point not prepared to budge that that must have been quite quite disconcerting in a way quite quite a precarious feeling but you must have you must have felt very strongly in order to, to continue under those circumstances oh you know um the answer is yes and and it was you don't do stuff like that lightly nobody uh, it, it it was it was still the biggest was then and still is the you know the number one tournament in the world so to walk out on it and take that kind of position was was a huge deal but the cause was so on our side I mean it's, it's hard to explain to somebody who, who wasn't there and who doesn't really understand because it sounds like you know there are these organizations that were trying to do things that uh, might have been normal they were definitely not normal I mean the idea the idea that the International Tennis Federation could say to a national association in those days my national association would have been the South African Lawn Tennis Association and that uh, they the South African Lawn Tennis had to give me permission to travel outside of South Africa to play tennis the Australians were caught up in that they had to stay after the Australian nationals before professional tennis and play exhibition matches all around Australia well that wasn't acceptable to professional tennis players I mean, it was insane. and it, uh, It's not an argument that anybody would even begin to make now. So the, that's the long answer. The short answer is that our position was so right that there really wasn't anything else to do. Were we going to go back under those controls? No way. So when, I mean, I understand at the time, because it was Wimbledon as well, the British press were, were, were rallying behind them. And... and how did you deal with that situation of, of, of obviously, you know, it's, it's difficult to get your point across publicly, I suppose, if, if, if the Wimbledon have got a lot, of, a lot of media behind them? Wimbledon have done so many things right that, uh, in, in the history of tennis. 99% of them, that was the 1% that was wrong. Um, and again, it was not a question. First of all, the British media were very uh, were very kind to me. They were very they were very um, personally. I mean, I, th- I think that they knew that we had a position, that we believed in it, and they didn't agree with it. It's hard to it's hard to disagree with Wimbledon when you're in in London and the tournament's about to start the next day. Um, but I don't think uh, there wasn't anybody that ever took anything personally um, uh, against me. They were they they targeted more um, Jack Kramer, I think, who was who was an executive director. I was the president. Um, but it wasn't hard. It, it, it wasn't hard. It was it was such a good cause. It was so logical, and uh, it was borne out by events the week after Wimbledon. It was never the same the week after Wimbledon. So it was a waste. With that in mind, that must give you great satisfaction to look back on and pride that, that you took a stand and that it was ultimately accepted. I never had any doubt about it, to be honest with you, David. So uh, pride, I suppose, but uh, it never occurred to me that this wasn't going to work out in our favour ultimately. And we, I looked at Wimbledon as if to say, gee, I just, I'm, sh- I'm sure you don't realise... What's it really? What's at stake? And it's just not worth doing what you're doing. But if if that's the way it's going to go, then that's the way it's going to go. Um, again, as I said, 99% of what Wimbledon has done in terms of open tennis and promoting open tennis and doing the things that they have done have been 
They've been spot on. And they've modernised well in recent yeah. years, haven't they? So the, the, the game has changed. The national associations have changed as well. We'd like to see the International Tennis Federation change a little bit uh, in the same direction, which I don't think they have yet. Um, but uh, I, I think uh, Wimbledon particularly in, in that case made a mistake and I, I have absolutely no hard feelings. I, I, look, I look back in those days with some pride actually. Well, if there's a more charming and charismatic man in tennis than Cliff Drysdale, I'd love to meet him. It's been a pleasure to have him here with us in Episode 8. The US Open Series will now begin in earnest, and we'll be back next week to run the rule over the Toronto Masters 1000 event, right here on the Tennis Podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>